good afternoon, all of you. I didn't give much thought to our arrangement of tables and chairs. Crossed my mind last night, and then I was busy with this and didn't get over here as early as usual. I see we left it as it was. And actually, uh, we'll see how this goes. I kind of like it. Uh, it draws us all in, and anybody that knows anything about crowd dynamics knows that when you're closer together, feeling, emotion, understanding, attention, everything goes up. And uh, just sitting here listening, it sounds like a congregation singing, not having a bunch of solos all over the, the room. So there are things about crowd dynamics that are important. Anyway, that aside, we have special music today by Gloria. This is taken from Psalms 103, 31 through 34, and 32, 7. And it is entitled, Emmanuel, My Strength and My Song.
seems the weeks go by very swiftly these days. seems like only yesterday we were going through the end of Zechariah <clears throat> and showing how God is going to return blessing to his church and ultimately to Israel. And then it winds up with the return of Christ and the beginning of his reign here on this earth. So it kind of comes to an end of the prophetic messages of the Bible so far as they go. Uh, then we come after that to the last book of the Minor Prophets, and uh, it's a bit of a shock to go from the turn of Christ on this page and the beauty and the wonders that will be here and how everyone will be worshiping him and every bell in Jerusalem will be a sound of holiness and praise and thanksgiving to God. Uh, what a way to close. If you're writing a book... You come to the climax, the end, and there's the beauty. But God intended this to be a story of the end time, and we've been going through that from Hosea, which is a uh, an indictment against Ephraim as a country and the church as the firstborn, as Ephraim is the firstborn country at this time. And it shows the ups and the downs and what God is going to do. And then, of course, Haggai and Zechariah describe the end-time work of the church as also uh, gone through in Daniel and the book of Revelation, <clears throat> as well as the other prophecies. But we come to a time of climax here in Zechariah 14 when Christ has returned. So then what's Malachi? Because it's not a very pretty book, at least not in the beginning. It ends up pretty nice as well. Well, what it is, is a summary of what we've seen from Hosea to, through Zechariah. and brings us back to the reality of the moment, because Christ's return has not yet occurred. So he takes us through the story... And then he gives us a flashback to where we unfortunately still are and what has been going on and gives a description of it all over again before he shows us how to get through it and what to do about it. So we are still not in the position, even though the first month 
and the things that we did last night and the prayers we gave are about the time when God turns things around and brings blessing again, and the church, or at least the remnant of it, has protection and blessing through the rest of what is going to happen. But what he does is gives us a review somewhat like we saw in Hosea and Joel, and coming forward through these little chapters of a book. So let's look at Malachi today and kind of do a review of where the church has been in these last few decades, why we're here, and what to do about it, because there is still some work to be done. And God gives us a clear view. He says, the burden of the word of the eternal to Israel by Malachi. So Zechariah gave us a rundown of the work as it will be and how it concludes. And then we have another heavy burden laid upon us. And this one is to Israel. Now, when he says Israel, it's all inclusive. It includes all the tribes of Israel, all the split, all tribes of Judah, uh, the Levites, who are mentioned in here specifically as one of the tribes uh, who are responsible for what has happened, the shepherds, the Levites, uh, the ministry. So this is the burden about everything basically that is still in the church and still in the nation. I have loved you says the eternal. Now here's an opening line. I have loved you. It's important we grasp and understand that, that God does love us. And he wants to forever love us, and he wants us to forever love him. That's his goal and his purpose. So he states that right off. I have loved you. Now, he didn't have to, as he explains here shortly. I have loved you, says the Eternal, yet you say, wherein has he loved us, or have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Eternal, yet I loved Jacob. Now, what does that mean? He said, and I hated Esau. And laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. God can choose whom he wants to love and to bless and whom he will turn to cursing. And he uses the example here of Esau and of Jacob. A lot of it was about attitude, was it not? Esau despised his birthright. In other words, he may have, in lucid moments, have been happy to be the birthright son, knowing he would inherit. But when he got hungry and wanted sustenance and expressed it like, I'm starving to death, give me some food, I don't care what it costs, I'm hungry. And Jacob was right there to say, Give me your birthright, I'll feed you, no problem. Well, what good would a birthright do me if I'm going to starve to death anyway and not be around? 
So give me the silk, you can have the old birthright. So he despised it by not putting the importance upon it. Now Jacob was perfect, was he not? <laughs> no, Jacob was not. And he went about receiving or achieving the birthright in the various ways. Lying and cheating and stealing to get it. Well, he didn't really steal it, I guess. He bought it. But break it down, it's kind of theft. He didn't really pay the value, did he? Uh, so it was not a good deal in that sense, but he profited greatly from getting the birthright. So they were both human. They both had problems. And yet the attitudes were quite different. Esau did not value what God, by virtue of birth, had given him. Jacob valued it very highly, very highly. And he went to any means necessary, including lying, cheating, and chicanery, to achieve it. Now, his methods were not the best. But his goal and his purpose was important and great. Now, which of those attitudes would God look to? If he was going to work with one or the other, if you have something and someone over here says, yeah, it ain't worth nothing. And over here somebody says, I'd do anything to get that. Which one are you going to work with? We'll straighten out your character problems, but your attitude in this sense is good. So God says, I made a choice here between these two men as to who would keep the birthright or have it and keep it, and who would not. And I have chosen to love Jacob because of the good qualities he does have. I'll fix the rest of it. But I've chosen to despise Esau because he doesn't see the importance here. And I'm going to bring this down to the church shortly, because that's what it's about. Even Hebrews goes into that, where Paul is talking to the church there in chapter 11, and says, don't be like Esau, who despised, did not value what God had given him, and then got bitter because he didn't have it anymore, and hated his brother and tried to kill him, and here, in a national sense, the book of Obadiah shows that Esau as a people, his descendants, still have not forgiven. They are still jealous of the United States and the birthright that God gave Israel through Jacob, Europe, and America. And they're trying to take it away. And will. And the Edomites, who are not their of Jacob, or I mean of uh, Isaac, but they are not of Israel because the line of Israel came only through Jacob. And Esau was left out. The Edomites are still left out, and they comprise a lot of Jews and the Rothschilds and a lot of people right now who are trying to destroy this nation 
And the book of Obadiah says they're going to be happy about it. And then he will take care of them. Now let's think about that in terms of the church as well as we go on through, because I think I have fairly conclusively uh, shown that Stan Rader and Joseph Takash were both Edomites within spiritual Israel who helped bring the church down. And we're proud of it. So those attitudes then are still there. They haven't gone away. How could God look at all the tribes of Israel in Genesis 49 and give you a rundown of what each would be like? Because the descendants carry the DNA of the parents. And those characteristics are still there all these generations later. So when you look down through history and see what Esau has done and what they're about to do and are doing to this nation today, you can see why God worked with one and not the other. Verse 4, Whereas Edom says, We are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, They shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the Eternal has indignation forever. Well, he still has a problem with Esau and the Edomites, because they haven't changed. They haven't repented. They're still just like they were. Now, I think it's interesting where he says here, I will build, or it says they will build, and I will tear down. Let's look at history a moment here, all the way back, so that we get a, a grasp of what's really being said here. God had built a beautiful universe, and he had created beautiful angels, and the 24 elders, and all that is about his throne. And it was a wonderful, beautiful, peaceful place. And then one thought, hmm, this is beautiful, but I could have done it better. I could have built it better. I think I actually could rule it better because I am so beautiful and so great. I have ability, I have everything that's needed really to be the leader. Who's, who does God think he is? Kind of like Korah and the others. Who's this Moses? Why is he any better than us? I think we can do a better job of ruling Israel than Moses is. Well, God made it clear he had put Moses in charge. And it's not a good thing to go against what God has done. So God built the universe and then started tearing it down. When Satan rebelled, he created a war. And the universe is not as pretty today as it used to be. Now, it's still beautiful when you go out and look at the stars at night. It hasn't been destroyed entirely. But it's not as beautiful as it was. This earth is not as beautiful as it was. Do you see volcanic action and 
black temples all over the earth where it has smoked and sent lava and spewed destruction all around. Still beautiful, but it's not as beautiful as it was because of the rebellion against God. So, march forward to the Garden of Eden. God restored a certain, certain things, and if he, on the Sabbath, after he had done it, he looked and he says, it is very good. Everything there was beautiful within the confines of that garden. There were no thorns, there were no cactus, there were no, no things that made life difficult. The temperature was perfect. They could run around naked day and night and be comfy. So everything was just right. And God said, it's very good. And he was pleased with what he had done. Long comes Sunday morning. Here comes the devil. Well, this isn't really what you think it is. And you've been given a certain amount, but you don't really know. You don't know good from evil, and if you eat this fruit, you will be so much smarter and know so much more and be so much better off than you are now. God said don't eat it, but, you know, doesn't it look pretty good? Here, try some. I'll take a will if you don't mind. It's kind of like at the bar. Buddy, buy, I'm going to buy you a drink. Well, I don't think I'll buy if you do. Easy to accept. Satan made it desirable. So they partook. And life went downhill. One of their siblings killed his brother. And on and on, it, not their siblings, the siblings from them, one of them killed his brother. And it's gone downhill from there. So God built it, and man destroyed it. Man and Satan. And have been working on it ever since. And he tells us in the book of Revelation, Woe to them that pollute the earth. So we have done a pretty good job of polluting it. Now, you and I can still go out and look at the world God has made, and even with everything Satan has done against it, everything we've done to pollute it, you can still go out in what God made and see a great deal of beauty there. You go into the cities man has made, and the beauty diminishes pretty quickly. But out in where, where God's hand, handiwork is still visible, it's still wonderful. Now, man built a tower in Babel, says we're going to reach to heaven, and we're going to rule. Satan's behind Nimrod. So they built a tower, and God tore it down. What God builds, we try to tear down, and then what we build, God tears down. He says in Zephaniah 3.6, I have cut off the nations, I have destroyed the towers. So what we build doesn't turn out so hot. 
Remember when the Twin Towers fell? There was a Jewish, I think, rabbi, can't remember his name, that pointed out where it talks about the towers falling and the sycamore that was there and how they would build it all back. Well, the government, the U.S. government, was behind those towers falling. They wired them, destroyed them for their own purposes. I think that's been pretty abundantly shown by now. It was our own people that did it. It wasn't Sahib and whatever his name was, the terrorists, whoever. We did it. But then we say, we'll build back. Whatever is destroyed, we think we can fix. doesn't work that way. Now with the church, Christ said, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So he built his church, and Satan, the gates of hell, have been fighting it ever since, and it has not ever died out. Along came Simon Magus, not Simon Peter, but Simon Magus, and built the Catholic Church right after God's Church was pretty much destroyed. And the Catholic Church became preeminent and became the universal church. And they say now, I don't know whether it's true or not, that we've known that a new religion with a false prophet is coming. Uh, haven't put a name on it or known exactly who. A lot of people, Protestants especially, thought it was the Catholic Church all along. But it's a merger. They're going to call it apparently Chrislam, a combination of Islam and Christianity, so that the Arabs and the others can get along with each other. Now, whether that's the way it will actually turn out, I don't know, but I read an article the other day saying that that's what it's going to be called, and the Pope will be uh, in charge. And that could be because the Pope we have at the moment is a globalist, and he hates Christians, uh, and pretty much says so. So, that remains to be seen. But, they are building up something instead of God, and God's church. Now, God's church has been torn down. God established it here at the end, revived it under Herbert Armstrong, and it went along for a while doing pretty well. And then corruption began to come in. Satan infiltrated it with Edomites and others, and it came apart and was knocked to the ground. And God, all through Lamentations and other places, says, I'm the one that did it. So it's been pretty much destroyed. While Satan's churches are still going strong. Not as strong as they were. They're beginning to lose attendance. and People are losing uh, attention and religion at all because of all this uh, evolution and so on that's been thrown at us. But God says they'll build and I'll throw down. All right, the church was built here at the end, and God saw to it that it was thrown down. 
Revelation 3 comes to mind immediately, where he says, I will spew you out of my mouth. He did it. He's the one that broke it into half-digested little bits that didn't taste so good in his mouth. He spewed it out. He tore down what we as men had built. Now, he was behind starting it. He was behind getting it going, but it didn't turn out because of men and Satan to be what it should have been. So he had to knock it down, and he tells us in Haggai and Zechariah that he's going to then build it back. But he had to get rid of what was. And that's what this is about right here. In spirit and mind, we became Edomites who did not cherish what God had given us, did not follow it with zeal and dedication, but were going through the motions, and it wasn't something that pleased him. In fact, it displeased him. We want joy, do we not? We want peace, happiness, and joy. And those are fruits of God's Spirit. But did we really truly take joy in God? Or were we taking joy in the buildings and the jet airplanes and the broadcasts and all of those things and being excited about them but lost our excitement and joy for God in the way that he wanted to be worshipped? We want joy and we take joy where we can find it. How much time and effort and conscious thought do you and I have of bringing joy to God? How much do we think about, how can I please you today? How can I make you happy? We tell each other on this earth, have a nice day, have a good day, hope the rest of your day is wonderful. They've been taught on sales lines to say that if you shop on the internet. So, we want joy, and we, to some degree or another, want to make somebody else smile and have joy. But how much do we think? And what I, is what I'm doing today going to cause God to smile? You know, God is the one who created smiles. He made the muscles and everything that do it. He did the little things in the brain that make you happy and go joy, joy. He did all that. So, you see all through the Bible that God smiles, that God is happy, that God laughs. He made all these emotions, and he made us capable of having them. So, here we are. What do we do for him? Is what we do day to day something that is a source of joy? I saw a kid last night drawing some pictures for parents. Little kids like to do things special for their parents. I can even remember, I don't know how far back when I was a little kid, that I wanted to do things that if mom came in or dad came home, it would please them. 
Now, there were a lot of times I did things that wouldn't please them, but I was having fun and I didn't care at that time. You know what I mean? But there were times when I thought, boy, I'm going to do the dishes. That'll surprise them. That'll make them happy. Didn't happen very often, but, you know, the times it did. So, as a little child, we would like to please them. And we're glad when they pick us up and say, that was wonderful. Thank you. Drawing them a picture, whatever it is. And as little children of God, we need to be doing everything we can every day to make him happy. You know what happens when he's happy? He does things for us that make us happy. You know what he does when we do things to make him unhappy? He does our things to our behinds that make us unhappy. That's what uh, Hebrews 12 is all about. He chastens every son whom he loves. Now, he said at the beginning of this book, I have loved you. You are Jacobites. You are my children that I have called into the church. And I have loved you instead of somebody else. So that would give, should give us a warm glow of thankfulness and satisfaction that God has loved us. And then we should be doing everything we can to return His love. He is the greatest in the universe. And we should want with all our hearts to make Him happy, to make Him smile. How we treat somebody else should make him smile. So he says, you build it the wrong way, I'll tear it down. Verse 5, and your eyes shall see, and you shall say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. We're going to look at what he's done, spewing us out, and we're going to say, Wow, God did this. Then you should ask the question, why did God do this? He'll let us know here. A soul honors his father and a servant his master. And, you know, that's the way it is. I just described something about how a son will try to please his father and to honor him. If then I be a father, where is my honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Says the eternal host to you. O priests that despise my name, and we you say, wherein have we despised your name? Now what this is telling us immediately, and this theme will be mentioned several times, is that we have trouble as a church overall understanding what has happened. God says, you didn't honor me, you didn't love me the way I wanted you to, and that you should have. And then you say, how so? We were being good. We were keeping the feast. We were keeping the Sabbath. What's wrong with it? And then, once it was spewed out, those who were in the ministry, the priests here, started saying, we'll build it back. 
just like the towers. That that thing of the towers falling, we'll build it back, is about the church, not just those towers in New York. So they decided, we'll build it back. We'll make it even better. We'll do Church of God Restored, and maybe even made a little better, because the guy that was had started that one, the uh, Church of God Restored, rewrote, I think, every booklet that Herbert Armstrong ever wrote because he figured he could do it better. He could he could take that and just improve it a little so that it was better than it had been. How much presumption and ego and vanity is involved in that? I can do it better than God did it through Herbert Armstrong is what characterized his attitude. You have one who based his whole building of a church on Malachi's message. And he didn't get the message at all. I read the book back in the early 90s when it was soon first out. And at first it sounded pretty good. And then I got to thinking about it and I thought, eh, this one doesn't work. I didn't know what did work at the time, but I knew that didn't work. So each one of them said, how did we displease you? We're okay. We're doing all right. We're going to build it back like it was. It wasn't us. It wasn't me that you despised. It was those other guys that are laying the sins. I see why you did it, God. You did it because of those laying the sins. But if all of you people will come and follow me, we're the Philadelphians. And almost to a man, that was their whole approach. God's just going back through this here. He's quoting Revelation 3 to us as the final book or a final chapter in this little book of 12. Where, how have we despised you? They can't understand that they did. I have to understand that I did. You know, it, it has to be a personal evaluation that comes up short. If it's about somebody else and how they aren't up to snuff, it's not about you and how you're not up to snuff. And that's why it's not wise that we compare ourselves among ourselves, as Paul said. Because in our evaluation, the other person is going to be less than we are. That's just the way the human mind works. So don't do it. The only place where you will not go wrong is to compare yourself to God. Then you get a little bit more honest evaluation. I am not anywhere near what he is. Therefore, he must be writing this to me because of my faults and my lack, not the other guy. Because you can blame it on the other guy. You get away scot free. People do that all the time. It's his fault. I didn't do it. He did it. I didn't do it. She did it. I just ate what she gave me. It's her fault. Well, I just did what the devil just said. It's his fault. They wouldn't take personal responsibility for what they've done. So what we have to do, when the Bible is written to everybody, but it is written 
to be personal to each of everybody. So we all have to take it personally. And when I read this, I have, I'm been a minister, been a priest, okay? I have to take it personally. When I read this, I have to read it, O Daryl, that despises my name, and you say, wherein have I despised your name? I have to take it personal, and I have to find out how I despised his name. If anybody's going to repent, it has to start with each individual, not accusation. When it starts with accusation, nobody changes. It's your fault, not mine. And if everybody says that, nobody changes. I've said this a thousand times in a hundred different ways. I know that. I'm repeating. But God gives us the same story over and over and over again. And if I go through his book, I'm going to be repeating myself a lot. Whether you like it or not, we got to live by every word of God, and he keeps repeating the same things over and over, because we keep doing the same things over and over. So put your name in there. I just did mine, and it's true. How did I despise God? You offer polluted bread upon my altar, and you say, wherein have we polluted you? In that you say, the table of the eternal is contemptible. God didn't build it quite right. I don't have to bring the offering in exactly the way he says. We settle for a lower standard than God set. Now, when he gave the animal sacrifices to start with, he gave guidelines on what kind they were to be. They couldn't be injured. They couldn't be deformed. They had to be perfect, in that sense, beautiful animals that were worthy to be brought to God. He doesn't want the deformed. He doesn't want the lame. He doesn't want the crazy. And animals get that way too. We had one here that I shot and we ate some of her. He wants that which is true and good and perfect. Now, we fall short of that, don't we? But he said, I will take the weak in the base and I will make them that way. In other words, we may have started out weak in base, but it doesn't want us to stay that way. He wants us to become strong. He wants us to become powerful. He wants us to become godly. And then we're not weak in base anymore, so that it might confound the wise of this world. Because they'll say, how did that kind of people become this? Just like the people around the disciples said, eh, don't pay attention to them. They're just fishermen. They didn't use good Hebrew. They were despised because they weren't the mighty and the noble of the day. But God said, I can fix them. But in bringing those animals for sacrifice, he didn't even want you to bring that which was not what it ought to be. Why? Because you respected his altar. Because you respected him. And you brought the best you had. 
before God. Now, you and I are the best we have. So we have to bring our best to Him. A sleepy time prayer, a Sabbath where you watch TV for an hour or two, a Sabbath where you think your own thoughts and do your own thing. You're not bringing your, instead of worshiping Him with your heart, mind, body, and soul, and you got your mind on other stuff. You're not bringing Him your best Sabbath keeping. Because, eh, I work a little bit, or this isn't really work. We don't think about it or justify it. And we walk on His Sabbath. And He says, quit walking on it. That's one of the prophecies. Don't do this anymore. Keep it right. Don't think your own thoughts or do your own things. Worship and serve me. Rest from all business and stuff you do through the week. So we have to keep his Sabbath the way he wants it kept, not just refrain from our daily work and sleep all day, but worship him. Appreciate the beauty that he has made. How do you do that? Well, I went out and sat in my backyard for a while this morning. Good place to pray. Uh, But I was looking at the buds on the trees and the lilacs and the roses turning green and seeing the things that God has made so that I could appreciate him. That's one way that I do it. You may have other ways and you may do that some too. But he tells us in Romans 1 that we can come to see him by looking at the things that he has made. And I stand in awe of mountains and trees and squirrels and deer. I stand in awe of my little fat pregnant goats and how they can reproduce and how before the baby is born, their bags fill out so that they can feed the baby. That doesn't happen here and there. It happens just before the birth. God has set it up so beautifully so that everything works together. And here you can have just a goat that gives birth to two, three, four babies, and they have food to eat, and they wag their little tails in happiness when they're sucking the tit. And it's just a beautiful thing. And I look at those things and I have to marvel at God because that wouldn't happen unless he'd made it. And the Sabbath sometimes is a good time to do things like that. Just sit and look at the things God has made and meditate on what a wonderful job he did. Because that makes you stand in awe and fear and wonder at God. So he says, you've despised me. You've not had your mind on the things that I've done. You've got your mind on your own stuff too much. Sabbath or any other time. So our prayers in that sense are polluted because they don't have the zeal, perhaps the energy, the thankfulness, the wonder, the awe, the fear that they ought to contain. Because we look at what God has made and said, this is awesome. Look at your children. They're not baby goats, but they're baby people. And it's even more awesome. 
how they got here and what we all went through to have them, good and bad. So we say, how did we despise you? And he says, you offered polluted bread. Doesn't mean you didn't acknowledge God. Doesn't mean you're not trying to obey God. But you didn't give him your best. You gave him that which was not up to par. In that you say, the table of the eternal is contemptible. Must be, because you didn't give it your best. And if you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? I've already been over that. We're just now getting to it. Offer it now to your governor. Will he be pleased with you or accept your person, says the eternal of hosts? He says, even with men, you kind of try to put your best foot forward and give them something nice. If you want favor from somebody, your boss or whatever, you invite them to lunch. Yeah, I got something special in mind for you today. We're going to McDonald's. <coughs> Is your boss going to be real pleased with that? Or could you have thought of a somewhat of an upgrade at least? We bring God that which is not what it ought to be, and then we expect him to be happy with it. We might not carefully prepare, let's say, our monetary offering that we bring before him. We just say, oh, it's what I've always given. I'll just give that. It's easy. I don't have to think about it. You know, I'll just, I always write the check for that much. I went over this a while back. But he says he loves a cheerful giver, and he says give that which you can give thankfully, peacefully, lovingly to God. So our offering at the Holy Days is an expression of our love and respect for him. Now, you have to base it on your income, and you can't give what you do not have. I understand all that. But your goal and your purpose should be to say, God has given me this and this and this. He's given me this much. And I can cheerfully give back to him in thanksgiving this much. Every holy day, you should go through this process. Think it through. Not just what I've historically done, five bucks, fifty bucks, a hundred bucks, whatever. Ten thousand, whatever it is you give. And there are people who do that. We don't. You don't. I don't. We can't. But we can give cheerfully of what we do have. And if you don't have pleasing God in mind, you'll just give what pleases you, which may be five bucks. Because you don't want to turn loose any more than that. You've got other ideas of what to do with that money. Now, I'm not trying to drum up offerings. That's not what I'm saying this for. I'm saying here God wants our thankfulness and our zeal and our joy and our cheerfulness in doing things for him. And he set up the offerings as a way of our expressing ourselves to God. Now, the tithe doesn't do that in the same way. A tithe is an amount that he said at 10%. That's what he did. And he said, this is your obligation. This is what you have to give to me. Now, 
We also have with that free will offerings, and they express how you feel about me. This isn't an obligation. This is an expression of your love for God. So you need to go through that mental and emotional process of saying, I love God. How much do I love God? I'm trying to quantify this because don't we all at times wonder if we love God or not? I do daily. Do I love Him more than I love myself? Well, apparently by the things I think and do sometimes, no. I put myself first, making myself an idol. He doesn't like that. He said, worship me above everything. And when I come to him with an attitude of doing what I want selfishly, I'm offering polluted bread. I'm saying, I've been putting myself first, but I'll, I'll give you some credit here. I'll give you some of my love, but not all of it. That's polluted bread. So express yourself to God. And he chose to give us a physical life for a certain time. And in that physical life, we need to do physical things in a godly manner. Now, you might say, well, that's just physical. There's no such thing as just physical. There is no such thing. Because everything has spiritual implications. You might put God aside and say, this is just physical, I'll enjoy it. Would it be sin or something that isn't sin that you want to enjoy instead of putting him first? I need to pray, but... I'd rather, whatever. So, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and yourself. So, you put God first and you do all physical things in a manner that would please Him. Let's use employment. There are a lot of people who go to work and they think that they should get a paycheck simply because they're there. They don't need to work, but just the fact that they're there entitles them to a check. There are others who will go through the motions of work and say, I earned my check. There are others who will come and they'll say, I chose to work for this company and they are here to make money. And if I'm here and I'm working for them, I should be helping them achieve their goals. Now, if I want to work for myself, I can go achieve my own goals. And I'll work at it. I found in my life, when I had my own business, I would work harder and longer at it than if I was working for someone else. It was just natural. I'm working for me. I'm going to get with it. I'm working for you. Hey, man, I'm a little tired today. No. If you're employed by someone, you chose to take that job. And in so choosing, you have an obligation and a responsibility to do everything you can during work time to enhance 
and help them meet their goals, which generally is making money. So what you do in a physical way has spiritual implications. Just like when you serve God, you want Him to help Him achieve His goal. What is His goal? Peace, happiness, unity, joy, and love throughout the universe. That's His goal. So you need to live your life helping Him achieve that. And you express it in physical ways by what you give to your employer, by what you do with everything that you have here on the earth. He says even with our own bodies, we need to glorify Him in our bodies by eating right, eating the way He says, eating the things He says, not the things we want, but do it His way and glorify Him in our bodies. And we all fall short on that one. We don't take as good a care of them as we ought to. And sometimes we eat junk and unclean and all kinds of things we shouldn't eat. And some of the stuff that we eat out of the grocery store probably has more negative effect on our bodies than even the unclean things that he said don't eat. Because they're even worse in terms of what they do to the body, than the things he put here that aren't food that tempts people to eat. So we have an obligation and a responsibility to find the best things we can find or make or grow the best things we can do to take care of our bodies the best we can in a wholly polluted situation. And it's difficult. You go in a grocery store and there's very little in there. Things worth eating. Very little. It's polluted in so many different ways. We all know this. But do we take responsibility for it? And how many processed food boxes go into that trailer every week? Probably more than ought to. Because we don't make sure we're getting that which is the best we can do. Physical food, physical body. Hey, I like this. I think I'll have some. But is it honoring God in what you put in your body? See, that's the key. Do what we can to help instead of to hurt. Yeah, man's polluted the earth. Do we help pollute it? Or do we do what we can in our little world to make it better? In the church because that's what this is about, do we do everything we can to make our brothers and sisters happy? Do we do everything we can to love them, to sharpen them, to help them increase their service to each other and to God? Is that our attitude, or are we just kind of sitting there? We did a lot of that worldwide. We can't afford to. We've got to do better than that. So we don't bring the lame and the sick. We bring the best we have. Now, we get old and lame and sick and blind and deaf. But that's one of the promises he gave us we were praying about last night, is that he restore us, that the blind see and the deaf hear and the lame walk, so that we can do his work. Now, we need to do our part to love him 
and make him happy so that he can smile on us. You know, he says in there, I've been frowning at you and I turned my head away from you. I couldn't stand to look at you. You were laid to sin. You're self-righteous. I, I can't handle that. So I turned my head. Now, I'm going to try to turn it back. Am I going to be able to stand it? And then he says he's going to smile on us with happiness and joy. Now, as human beings, we're going to fall short of being able to do everything that just pleases God and makes him happy and smile and chuckle. So he says, I'll forgive you in one day. I will give you my righteousness instead of your self-righteousness as you've exhibited so far. And when you are then given that, I'll be able to smile and be happy with you. So if you want him happy and smiling and blessing you, does it not follow that you ought to be doing everything you can to make him smile and laugh and sing with joy at what his children are doing? He was happy with Adam and Eve when they were so worshipful, appreciative, thankful for what he had given them in the garden and each other. Wow. And then it changed because they put something ahead of God. And he wasn't pleased. And then when they got booted out, they weren't very happy either. So we did not make God happy in the church, even though he had started building it right. We became Laodicean, half-hearted, self-righteous, and putting ourselves first, which is idolatry. And he couldn't handle that anymore. So he said, Now, when that happens to you, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to make God happy again. Isn't that the lesson with our children? I know when my children would do something that displeased their father, I would paddle their behinds, and they would cry, and I had been unhappy with their conduct, and then they got unhappy with mine. But then, when the crying subsided, I would sit them on my knee, and I would tell them how much I love them, and then now that they were in a good attitude, I was pleased with them, and I could smile and tuck them under the chin and have fun with them again. But it was all about attitude, and that's what it is with the church. It isn't that our conduct is so bad. We keep the peace, we keep the Sabbath, we keep, you know, we do these things. It isn't that it's so bad, it's that our attitude is not what it ought to be. And that's where parents make a mistake. <clears throat> They'll give the child a little, or whatever, and the kid quits doing what it's doing, maybe, but it hasn't changed its attitude. It gets mad. It gets upset. It pouts. It runs off crying. Whatever it does, kids do it different ways. But they let it be known that they are going to still have their autonomy and that their attitude is better than yours. And they'll show it by the way they look at you. So they might have quit doing what was up disturbing you, but their attitude hasn't changed. 
And when mine would do that, I would pick them up, and I would wear them out even worse than I did the first time, and see if their attitude would change. And if it didn't, we do it again. And we hurt their little hiney. It has to hurt. Because you are trying to have a change of mind, an attitude, an emotion. And you're not finished if that kid's still in a rebellious mood. It's when he changes his mind, his attitude, and becomes sweet and cooperative and helpful and smiling and loving you that you finished chastening. Now, God has been chastening the church and paddling our behinds for quite some time now. And most of the church hasn't changed their attitude. They still think I'm a Philadelphian. This is only happening because of them. I'm only getting my bottom spanked because you're not the right kind of parent. You shouldn't be doing this to me. I'm me, after all. No. You've got to stay at it until they recognize that, yeah, I'm just me and you're you, and I need to be happy with you. I need to be pleased with you. And when the child gets that way, then the parent can be pleased with the child, and they can sit in the chair in love, not in pouting. You haven't done your job until you get them happy and joyful again. And God is not going to let up until at least a tenth of his church becomes happy and lovable and doing their utmost to please him. That's what we have to do day by day is do our utmost to make God smile. You know, if you can't stand your kid at the moment, you love your kid, don't you? And you want to smile at them, but, man, what was your mad attitude? I can't. Ooh, go to your room. Go stand in the corner. Get out of my sight. I can't stand your attitude. So they go in their room and sulk, or in the corner and sulk. Time out has mixed results. That's what they want us to do now. Make them have time out. No, make them have time on. Work with them until it's time on. And that takes taking something away or inflicting pain. That's all God has been doing to us is inflicting pain. Until we decide we don't want any more pain and that it would probably be better to smile than to sulk. Okay, God, I'm going to smile. I want to make you happy. What can I do today to make you happy? Have a nice day, God. Are we trying to make our day happy and we go to Him in our prayers so that He will make us happy? Or do we go him to make him happy? He is the omnipotent, sovereign God of the universe. And if there's anybody I want to be happy, it's him. 
we've got the expression, Mama ain't happy, nobody ain't happy. Maybe sometimes if Daddy ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Or even the kids. Kids ain't happy, nobody's happy, that's for sure. So what do we do? We make God happy. That's our job down here. Make him happy. When he's happy, everybody's happy. When he ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. That simple. So we have to work at making him happy. Now he's telling us here, <laughs> I've not been happy. That's all this is about. You haven't brought the best to me and made me happy. You brought that with you. Well, I, this one's lame. Instead of shooting it, I'll give it to God. <laughs> you know? We kind of despise him if we're in that attitude. Will he be pleased with you or accept your person, says the eternal of hosts? You bring that which is not the very best? He's the God of the universe. He deserves the very best. The best of our time, the best of our prayers, the best, best of our thoughts. He made us. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Our human bodies were designed by a God of love. And now I pray you, beseech God that he will be gracious to us. He ain't happy, let's make him happy. <laughs> He's saying it right here. This has been by your means. Will he regard your person, says the eternal of hosts? Is God going to be pleased with you as a person? Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for nothing. Neither do you kindle fire on my altar for nothing. I have no pleasure in you, says the eternal of hosts, neither will I accept an offering at your hand. In other words, he says, you won't do anything unless there's something in it for you. You won't worship me and give me your time because you want that time. You want to put yourself ahead of me. You won't cheerfully give me an offering because you want to keep it. It's all about attitude. And he's not going to give up punishing until we're sweet and loving and cheerful and wanting to serve him and make him gracious. We're self-righteous. We want to please ourselves. Our prayers are mostly selfish. God grant me this, 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 or that. And sometimes even the things we ask for are good things. Wisdom, understanding, guidance, you know, those can be good. But if it's just to enhance you, what good is it? If it's to make him happy, then you know he can turn around and give you blessings. So your goal isn't to get something for you, a blessing. It is to make him happy. And if he is happy, the blessing will simply come. Who is there even among all those who already read that? I have no pleasure. Verse 11, for from the rising of the sun, even the sundown of the same, no name shall be, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and in every uh, 
place incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the heathen, says the eternal of hosts. Now Assyria and Nineveh were in an ungodly mode. And God sent Noah to tell them to repent, and they were ungodly to the core in Nineveh. And yet they repented, and what did God do? He removed the curse that he was going to bring on them from them. He blessed them, and he complimented them. And he told Jonah, look, these people repented. And Jonah said, I'm going. I didn't want them to, and I didn't want them to be blessed. I wanted them to be destroyed because you said they're going to come destroy Israel. A bad attitude. Went out and sulked. God had to straighten him out. <laughs> but God was happy. And he says, the Gentile nations are going to come and worship me. How much more should you be? You're my chosen sons of Jacob. And I can't tell you from the unrepentant Gentile. That's Ezekiel 16. You look like Hittites and Amorites to me. You don't look like my children. You look like Methodists and Baptists to me. You don't look like my people. Oh. So he says, the Gentiles haven't been called yet. Most of them, a few have. But when I do call them, they're going to come and worship me with the love and emotion and feeling the way I want to be worshipped. So he says, grow up here. Get an attitude here. Change. Attitude adjustment hour. That's what God's brought to the church. But you have profaned it. And that you say, the table of the Lord is polluted, and the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible. So we look at the rest of the church, each individual or each group, and say, God's church is polluted. Everybody's filthy but me. Wrong, wrong approach. You said also, behold, what a weariness is it. I just get tired. It's just, it's so hard to live a Christian life. <laughs> it's so hard to serve God. It's so easy to do what I want and think what I want. It's so easy to sin. You know, sin is like falling off a log. That just comes real easy. Not sinning is difficult. Takes energy. Takes focus. Takes effort. But if it's everybody else's fault, you can say that the church is what it ought to be, the we're Philadelphians, we're okay, everything will go right for us. That's just not the right approach. It's a weariness. You've snuffed at it and said, the Lord of hosts, uh, as it says the eternal hosts, and you brought that which was torn and the lame and the sick, he's repeating what he did earlier. Thus you brought an offering, should I accept this of you, says the eternal? You haven't brought your very best. You haven't done your very best. You haven't worshipped me as I want to be worshipped. You don't show the respect for me that I, res I should have. Just like our little children. You see children in the world, they'll kick their parents in the shin. They'll scream in the grocery store. They show no respect whatsoever for their elders. They haven't been taught to. 
You've got to teach that. They have to learn that because they don't have it by nature. Maybe a little bit, but not overall. You have to intervene in their attitudes and make them right. That's what God is doing with us. Should I accept less than your best? No. But cursed be the deceiver which has in his flock a male and vows and sacrifices to the eternal a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, says the eternal of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. He's going to shake this world, and he is going to become a dread to the whole world. And here we have been given the opportunity to see his loving and his good side, and we despised it and did not give him total worship, total attention, and put him first above everything else, <clears throat> and he's not happy with that. Just as we want that love and respect and feeling from our children, so that they are a joy to us. And if they're not a joy to us, then they're not much fun. So we work with them to make them become a joy. That takes time, it takes energy, it takes effort. You've got to work with that little child, and as he grows, you have to work at it to cause him to love you and to respect you and to serve you. You can't make that child your buddy. A lot of people call their child buddy. Nah. There's no room for that. You are far superior to that child. He's not your buddy. He's there to learn respect for adults and respect for God, ultimately. And to respect you, not just be your friend or your buddy. Come on, buddy, let's go get a walk. No. Totally wrong approach. You're my child. You're not an adult. You respect and obey and follow the rules of the adults and of God. Isn't that what he wants of us? We follow his rules. We respect him. We fear him. We stand in awe of him. And that makes him happy, and then he blesses us. That's the way it works. And that's not the way the church has been. We didn't live up to our responsibility, and we upset him. Now, what do we do? We change our attitude. We're not trying to please ourselves anymore. We're not trying to just get blessings from him for our sake. But we are living our life to make God happy. It is my great pleasure to give you, my little children, my kingdom, my little children. He wants to be so happy, so pleased, so joyful, that he can grant you grace and favor and mercy and immortality. He wants to be so happy to do that for us. Do we see, then, the importance every day in every way Making that day a happiness and a joy to God. 
That's our focus. Make God happy. Honor our parents. Please Him. Do things for Him. Prayer should not be a chore. It should be something from out of our heart wells up thankfulness and wonder at His majesty, at His glory, at what He has done in making the world and us. And be so thankful for life and the opportunity and the future that it holds. I was thinking this morning, sitting, looking at what he's done, and thought, you know, I could die and be dead, and it wouldn't matter to me anymore. I wouldn't have any thoughts. If I stayed dead, I wouldn't miss being in the kingdom of God. Because the dead know nothing. And I would miss it, but I wouldn't know I was missing it. So it's not that great big a deal, is it? Yeah, but in my conscious mind, while I'm still alive, I want to live forever. I don't want to be dead. I don't want to be rotting in the ground. I want to be alive. I want to enjoy the beauty of God's universe forevermore. When he removes the pollution from the earth, removes the devil, removes sin, and you have to have peace and love and obedience, security, and all those things that a human being wants will have. I don't want to miss that. I want to be there. So, what do I need to do? Please, God. 